It is truly all about Jesus. That is why we're here. That is why we are looking at his word. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, congregation, those of you that are here this morning for uh, preaching to me, even as I was getting ready to uh, preach to you and to myself as well. It's a joy and a privilege to get to open up this series on the book of Colossians. My name is Kurt Busnitz, and my wife, Denna, and our daughters are part of the church family here at Northfield. And we are also uh, privileged to be supported missionaries of Northfield, serving with RHMA to mobilize church planting work among spiritually needy communities across rural America. So I unapologetically love small towns. I love the towns like Tremonts and Delavans and Dillons and Grovelands and Hopedales and even Mackinac, though we have a little rivalry (laughs) at our school. You know, in small towns, people look out for each other. Um, just this uh, week, our neighbor sent me a text while I was at work. Hey, do you know there's somebody taking pictures in your backyard? And I texted him back, yeah, just the insurance agent, no big deal, you're fine. But, you know, we like that in a way. Sometimes maybe our neighbors get into our business a little too much in, in small town America, but it's a part of the way of life that we, that we love and enjoy. We can still enjoy the outdoors, we can see the stars at night. And even if there is a lot of corn and soybeans, like Doug reminded us, last week even that is beautiful. And this time of year, we see a harvest coming on that God has provided, and that's an amazing thing. But rural America isn't perfect. In many small towns, the opioid crisis is epidemic. Other addictions and diseases of despair have crept into small towns, and it's not hard to find many small towns that really lack hope that their future has anything to offer. There's a lot of struggles in small town life. And in reality, the book of Colossians was written to a a community that was declining in population. It wasn't a place that you would choose to go plant a church if you wanted to make a splash for your denomination or for your church planting organization. You wanted to be an up-and-coming, big name in church planting. You would not have gone to Colossae. But God cares about those places. The number one song on Apple Music for the past several weeks was written by Oliver Anthony. That's his music recording name. He works a small farm in Virginia. Some of you may have heard the song. I had to edit out some inappropriate words, but listen to this line. It's a shame what the world's gotten to for people like me and people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is. Part of what that song does is give people in unknown places a voice to cry out and ask, does anyone important care that I exist and that the world has gone on without me? Last I checked, 53 million people had listened to that song on YouTube. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are wondering that same thing. Does anyone important care that I exist and that the world has gone on without me? Maybe that's you. This morning, I want to offer the suggestion that the the book of Colossians exists so that we understand that there is someone important that cares about us, and his name is Jesus Christ. This series, as we look at the book of Colossians, like I said, it's uh, going to a community where there was... um, a recognition that cultural um, prosperity and economic wealth were fading like a shrinking dot on the first century map. People in this town were also struggling spiritually. 
And out of this book rises an answer that there is a king of kings named Jesus who cared enough to leave the splendor of heaven and be born in a feed bunk and give his life as a ransom for sinners to pay the price of freedom that we could never pay and then to break the chains of death rising in victory. And this calls for a response, which is our key focus of Colossians, surrender to Christ who is king over all creation. And we're going to see that over and over fleshed out as we go through this series. This morning, what I want us to focus on, though, is built off of that. The treasure found in surrendering to Christ is a gift we should want to help others find. As we think about Colossae, let me give you just a little background information first and hopefully be able to apply that. I've circled a couple spots on the map. Down at the bottom would be kind of the area where Israel is today, Jerusalem. Up the middle circle is Antioch, and that's where Paul would have been sent out on his missionary journeys. And then the third circle towards the middle is Colossae, which is today in modern-day Greek. Colossae was nestled in a two-mile-wide valley through which the Lycus River snaked its way. It was known for livestock for wool production and for coloring dyes that came from chalk deposits in the surrounding area. At one time, Colossae was prosperous. It was a well-known city. It was at the junction of two trade routes, and people came to Colossae from all over. But then the Romans rerouted the main road to go through Laodicea, and Colossae began to decline. One commentator said, in Paul's day, it was a small city overshadowed by its more prosperous neighbors. Do you know that Colossae has never been excavated? It has never been uncovered because it's considered to be uh, lesser known and, and uh, insignificant. Just recently, they have started um, uncovering things there, and it's going to be exciting to see what they come up with. But in our Christian world today, like I said, Colossae would not be picked as a top spot for a church plant. You know, the decline of Colossae reminds me a little bit about the decline of Towns along Route 66. When we moved here, we, we learned that this area was kind of part of that route where from Chicago to LA, this main artery that people would travel and they would cruise through small towns, they would visit cafes, they would shop, and small towns thrived. Then the interstates came and all of that went away. The small towns were often bypassed. And actually, in the movie, uh, and here's a, a modern day picture of the area that Colossae would have been close to, and you can see just kind of a beautiful valley, um, kind of ranching country, and it looks really, really beautiful, but the town of Colossae is, like I said, no more. In the Cars movie, we see here uh, Lightning McQueen and his friends end up in this no-name town of Radiator Springs, and if you remember the storyline, Part of that story is that this town used to be significant and then the the big roads came through and now Radiator Springs is just a washed up place and people are sitting there hoping that one day something significant would happen but feeling like the world has gone past them. Well, when you think about Route 66 and when you think about the movie Cars, I want you to think about Colossae. I want you to think about this reality that there is a God who sent his son so that we could know him, and he cares about people. He cares about us no matter where we are. The treasure found in surrendering to Christ is needed by everyone and offered to everyone. We don't need to look anywhere else but Christ to have all the fullness of a relationship with God, the source of true joy 
and peace. You see, the spiritual climate in Colossae was threatening to undermine the gospel. False teaching there was threatening and it was tempting for these new believers to think that there might be a treasure beyond Christ or rituals and regulations that would get them more of God, and that's called legalism. There was also false teaching that you needed special knowledge beyond Christ. It was the infancy of Gnosticism, if you've heard that term. Key words like mystery and knowledge are used a lot in the book of Colossians because Paul wants them to know that there is no greater mystery to discover than Jesus. No greater enlightenment than the light of the world, our Lord and Savior. One commentator writes this, Colossians gives us Jesus' true identity. Far from being just another religious leader, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, I had that page number for you here. I think it's 983 in your pew Bibles. And let's see what Paul, how Paul begins this letter. Colossians 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God the Father. So Paul identifies himself as the author at the start of this book. He also lets us know that Timothy is there with him, and most scholars believe that Timothy helped to transcribe what Paul received from the Lord as a message to the Colossian church. Paul also identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is saying, I'm a, I'm a leader. I have authority, not because I thought it would be really cool for me to step into this role, but because God had a plan for my life. And so if we look at the backstory of Colossians, we have to realize that the identity of Jesus was so important to Paul's faith. In fact, if you would turn with me, Let's go back to the book of Acts for a moment, and let's go to Acts chapter 9. As you're turning there, here's just a little bit of Paul's pilgrimage. He was born in Tarsus, clear up north at the top of the Mediterranean Sea, and then he came to spend some time in Jerusalem, and then we're going to see where he goes to Damascus there in the middle. So Paul was, you could say his his. His name was Saul in a Hebrew sense. It was Paul in a Gentile sense. He was a Roman citizen as well as from Jewish heritage from the tribe of Benjamin. So in a sense, Paul kind of had it all. We could say he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but he was passionate about the law. His dad was a Pharisee and he was passionate about being a Pharisee as well, a religious leader who highly, highly valued the law of Moses. Now let's say that you're a skeptic. And you, you didn't believe in the ability of Jesus to transform lives. One thing you would have to reckon with is the 180 degree turn in the, in the Apostle Paul. The testimonies of those who were baptized a couple of weeks ago were powerful. And I always look forward to those. I look forward to the next time we get to have a baptism. Because you know what? There is a miracle of salvation that gets shared about becoming a new person on the inside. And it's a work of God that only he could do. And so in Acts chapter 9, we see a U-turn in Paul's life that's a work of God that can't be explained any other way than that God got a hold of his life. Now, as we look at at Paul's life, something that might be kind of helpful for us is just to see this path that he goes on. He starts out really confident, but then he quickly becomes confused. 
Join me, if you would, um, page 917, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul enters the scene in Acts chapter uh, 7 as one of the ones who watched the coats of the men who were stoning Stephen. And it almost seems like something snapped inside of Saul. Saul started to believe very strongly that this Christianity was a cancer that needed to be eradicated from the Jewish faith. And so he saw himself as the surgeon. He saw himself as the one to remove the, tur- the tumor. And so he became the, the pit bull, the hitman of the religious leaders. And he began to go and find Christians. In fact, the, the reality is, is not only did he bring them to prison, but he was a part of convicting them and, and getting them killed. And so he's ravaging the church. He's doing incredible damage. And yet he's confident. He is as sure as sure can be that Jesus Christ was a false Messiah. That the person that Jesus claimed to be could never have been. So Saul is still looking for this future Messiah, thinking that he's got to stop people from believing that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. So he's on his way. He's got paperwork. He's going to go to Damascus. He's found that there's a contingency of of people there who have become Christ ones, Christ worshipers, and he is going to do his best to stamp this thing out. The only thing is, the harder the persecution was, the further the early church spread, and God began to use it in a powerful way. And so as Paul is on this journey, he has this incredible encounter. We've all been in a storm where there's lightning and thunder, but this was something totally new. As he gets close to Damascus, this light shines with incredible brilliance, and he falls to the ground. He can't even stand on his feet. He's in such shock, but then he hears a voice that he knows is coming from the throne room of heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul knows who he's persecuting. He's persecuting the Christians. In that moment, I believe that not only was Paul or Saul majorly confused, but I think he also became convicted He knew that this voice was coming from the presence of God and he knew that it was accusing him of doing the very opposite of what he thought he was doing. And then he gets this message in verse five as he says, who who are you, Lord? And, And Jesus tells him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In that moment, he knew Jesus was alive. In that moment, he knew that the the Christians, his followers were not wrong about Jesus. And I believe that Saul at that moment entered into this process of saving faith that he was beginning to understand that Jesus was who he said he was. And that conviction led him to a, a contrition, a sorrow within his heart. He is stunned, he is shocked But he gets a message in verse six, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Saul is broken. He's devastated. He can't eat. He can't drink. He can't see. He can look with his eyes and he sees nothing. He has to be led. He's not in charge. But he's starting to understand Jesus is. King David, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then, and also murder of Uriah, her husband, said this in Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus, on this, in the Sermon on the Mount, as he began that message, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You see, if we don't come to this place of conviction and contrition and being, being at a place of knowing that we don't deserve eternity with God, we haven't really entered into this pursuit of salvation. But God met him there. And God also called him there. Really, Saul was called all along. This was God at work in his life, but now he begins to hear about it. In verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. That's a scary thing to say to the Lord. And because look look what follows. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done in your, to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Lord, are you sure this is a good idea? This guy is probably going to end my life, my ministry But the Lord says to him in verse 15, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What an incredible thing. God had a plan for Saul. God got a hold of his life because he wanted to use him. His life wasn't over just because he'd made those mistakes, because he'd been pursuing a false gospel. And so... We come to this amazing application. The treasure found in surrendering Christ can transform anyone, can transform anyone. So Ananias departs. He goes, he lays his hands on Saul. And he says in verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. So here he goes from being called to connected. Now he has a family, and these Christians that he had persecuted, they're skeptical of him, but he begins to integrate as a part of the body of Christ, and he gains a new courage. He gains a new confidence. So the confidence that he had at first was in the flesh. It was self-efforts. And now he comes to realize that this God that he was trying to worship wasn't just someone to know in your head, but someone to worship in your heart. What a great truth it is 
that surrendering to Christ can transform anyone. If you would have asked people who was the least likely person to be transformed by the gospel, I guarantee the Christians in Damascus or anywhere else would have said Saul of Tarsus. But you see, God wasn't done with him. And God had a lot of things to do in Saul's life. He would later become known as Paul as he was transformed into this amazing preacher and spreader of the gospel. As far as we know, Paul never went to Colossae. In fact, he shares in Colossians chapter 2 verse 1 that he has not seen many of them face to face. But we do know that Paul spent three years in Ephesus, which was 100 miles from Colossae. And during that time, many from all around Asia came and heard the Apostle Paul, and many of them were converted. And so if you turn with me back to Colossians, I want us to see the thread of what God was doing and how it weaves together. Paul continues to write in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the spirit. How many of you have thought a lot about Epaphras in the last week? Epaphras is kind of a no-name guy, and yet, you know what? He was probably one of the guys who heard Paul in Ephesus. He was probably one of those guys who traveled from his hometown of Colossae, from this ranching community, and he goes over to the big city of Ephesus, and he hears this guy preach about the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he comes to know him as his Lord and Savior, and he goes back to Colossae, and he begins to preach the gospel. And guess what? A church is born. And so we see that there's this amazing thread that God uses Ananias to disciple Paul and bring him into fellowship as a follower of Jesus. And then Paul reaches Epaphras, and Epaphras plants a church by sharing the gospel, helping lead people to Christ and teaching the word of God. And Epaphras is this beloved fellow servant who has served well. In the missions course, which my wife, Den and I, and our daughter, Abby, we were able to take with some of the rest of you, um, highly recommend it. They said this, if you make disciples without a church, they rise and fall in one generation. But if you have a local church where disciples are gathered into, that lasts generations. And so through the effort of Epaphras, God allowed there to be the birth of a church, a body of believers. As you can see in your bulletin, there's an announcement to be praying for Paul and Jen Shear and the ministry at Goofy Ridge. And as we start the book of Colossians, what a great application to be praying for what Paul and Jen shared with us last week. Could we be praying in a renewed way for the establishment of a local church at Goofy Ridge? Because you know what? We don't want just there to be an impact for one generation, do we? One generation is great. One generation is wonderful. But we want God to establish a work there 
for many generations to come. And the way for that is the establishment of a local body of believers. So here's an application that we have from thinking about this path of church planting. The cost of helping others surrender to Christ is always worth it. Epaphras, for many of us, is just kind of a no-name, and yet Paul says he's up here in my book because he went to a place, a place that others maybe didn't want to go, but he went back to his people, and he shared Christ with them. Jesus said in John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. As Jesus was sharing that, he was talking to his disciples and he was asking them to follow his example as he was going to the cross and the grave. And when we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, we get spiritual DNA for multiplication. Just like this seed has this incredible stuff inside of it that when it goes in the ground and it gets oxygen, it gets water, it gets in that soil, it's going to produce and multiply into more seeds, more crops, more beans. That's us if we know Jesus. When we trust Christ, we're packed with multiplication DNA inside of us. We're transformed not just for heaven, but so that we can help others reach heaven. That's what we're called to. Dr. Warren Wiersbe, a Bible teacher years ago, said this, God's children are like seeds. They are small and insignificant, but they have life in them, God's life. However, that life can never be fulfilled unless we yield ourselves to God and permit him to plant us. Sometimes God's will feels like we're getting buried, right? God, I'm going under, but God says, wait a minute, I'm planting you. I'm planting you for a greater good that you don't understand. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Years ago, RHMA had a missionary couple who went to Long Pine, Nebraska, a dinky little town in the middle of nowhere. Their names were Chuck and Pauline Myers. While they were in Long Pine, they befriended a young man named Al. Al Theodore was a young kid who lived for the basketball court because at home, he had nothing. His home or his family was pretty much outcast in the community because they were at the bottom of the social status. They, had, they were in the poverty level, um, didn't have really anything. But Al was reached with the gospel by Chuck and Pauline. Al came to know Jesus and God called him into ministry. And even though he was this kid that everybody thought was dumb and struggled terribly with school, he went to Bible college and he became a pastor. And God began to use him and his wife Lois to revitalize small struggling churches in little communities. One of those communities was Neely, Nebraska, another dinky little town. And it was there that Al visited a rough, hard-drinking construction crane operator named Jeff. Jeff and his wife, Nikki, were pretty intimidating. At least Jeff was. But Al found courage in the Lord and shared Christ, and Jeff and Nikki came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And God called them into small-town ministry. And eventually they landed at a church in Hawk Springs, Wyoming, which is near Frontier School of the Bible in LaGrange. And a young couple going there began attending the church named John and Sierra. And they were able to disciple this couple. And now that couple is planning to go to a small town somewhere in the Southwest where they can share Jesus with people who are in out-of-the-way places. God is still doing the kind of stuff that happened in Colossae. 
Jesus is still the answer. The treasure found in surrendering to Christ is a gift that we should want to help others find. And when we surrender to Christ, who is king over all creation, get ready for God to harness you to the yoke of Jesus for an amazing adventure. We're going to get the opportunity to hear a, um, a special number of music as Mitch comes up and others. And we just want to invite you to spend some time thinking about where God has you in the gospel journey. And maybe even spend some time praying for Goofy Ridge and asking God, God, what would be my part in what you've called us to do in the Great Commission? Just ask that you uh, remain seated and meditate on on the lyrics and and sing it if you know it Um, but really just as as a prayer to the Lord of um, surrendering to him Yeah. 
takes us, but I do know that God's grace and peace are going to be with you. Paul writes to these Colossians, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Wasn't that Paul could dispense it to them, but he was saying, I want you to live in who Christ is. I want you to take advantage of what Christ has given you. So brothers and sisters, take that grace and peace, take it into the world and share it.